Greetings, rabble rousers. My name is Jessa McLean. Welcome to Blueprints for Disruption, a weekly discussion dedicated to amplifying activism across Turtle Island. Together, we will examine tactics, explore motivations, and celebrate successes in disrupting the status quo. This podcast is a proud part of New Left Media. What you've just heard there is a clip from a protest organized by our next guests from the Najwan Support Network. It is a demonstration outside of a workplace. They are attempting to, you know, name and shame bosses into returning stolen wages. This is a real problem. In 2016, a study showed in Ontario alone, over a six-year period, $28 million were stolen from workers in the form of wages. Sometimes that is thousands of dollars to folks, and it's primarily people working low-wage jobs, minimum-wage jobs, or otherwise precariously employed. We'll get into that later. This episode of Blueprints of Disruption isn't so much about worker exploitation and wage theft, which we do discuss, but it features the resistance that exists within workers. Our guests are Simran and Arun, both from the Najawan Support Network. I will let them, of course, describe their work in more detail. Um, what I will tell you, though, that is the work that they do is entirely driven by marginalized workers, many whom have worked very hard jobs far from their homes, only to have their wages stolen by their bosses. So the stories we'll hear are both incredibly inspiring, but equally devastating. So I do want to take time here to issue a trigger warning on the mentions of suicide that will happen in this episode. It is the reality facing workers, but it may be, some parts may be hard to listen to. The absolute precarious nature of employment is leaving more and more workers susceptible to wage theft. But I cannot stress enough here that our, and our, my guests do the same, that our laws around employment and immigration have purposely maintained very exploitable conditions for those immigrating to Canada particularly international students and workers without permanent residency. You'll hear it referred to as PR throughout the episode. Now, these are the workers that NSN consists of, and we are thrilled to have them here on Blueprints of Disruption today to not just share their experiences, but more importantly, their knowledge. Thank you both for joining me today. Uh, I appreciate you taking out the time of your busy schedule. I see that you guys have a lot of work that you have been doing. Can you take a moment and introduce yourself to listeners? Thank you so much, Jessa, for inviting us to speak with you today. Uh, my name is Simran, uh, and I'm a member of Najawan Support Network. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for having us on here, Jessa. Uh, my name is uh, Aurin, and I'm also a member of Najwan Support Network. Both of you, Aurin and Simran, can you tell us what you do with the network? I imagine you wear many hats, but what what kind of work are you doing there? Um, so we're kind of doing a day-to-day 
talking to workers, working on individual campaigns, organizing events for protests. Um, it's not really like an NGO where we have like a specific hat or a specific role. So we're kind of just uh, general members and everyone takes on different responsibilities as they come and as their uh, personal and work lives allow them to. That can be a challenge. Arun, is it the same for you? Uh, mostly just pick up what needs doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think of us like uh, as kind of a collective. We all kind of pick up the slack where, wherever necessary. Um, no, no kind of stone left unturned. Whatever realistically the organization has to do is decided on as a group. And then, uh, you know, there's different members that pick up whatever necessary seems to be, you know, needs to be done kind of thing. So for folks that don't know, what does Najwan Support Network do? Um, what is their primary goal? Um, well, it was created as a group of like international students and workers, primarily that reside in Brenton, uh, but like increasingly now into Peel region. Um, and a year ago, like we noticed that there was a significant amount of uh, suicides that were happening in our community. Uh, largely from international workers and students that came here and just didn't have any mental health outcomes that were, you know, positive for themselves. Uh, this was occurring at the same time as the Kisan Ekta Morcha that was happening in India, the big farmer protest that made the news all over the world uh, recently. And uh, there's a long history of these farmers and peasants having to, you know, put up with these awful conditions and exploitation in India. And there's a lot of like history of them committing suicide over these sort of things as well. So we saw the parallels between those two, and we decided to organize ourselves to fight that exploitation as it happened here. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the India has a fascist government in place that like doesn't help with that. But of course, our government has its issues as well. And uh, we wanted to fix the material conditions under which this exploitation was occurring and under which people were committing suicide at the rates that they were at the time. And still are. That hasn't stopped. And just um, uh, broadly in terms of what NSN is, um, we're a group of international students and immigrant workers primarily based in Brampton. But we have many workers who come outside of Brampton specifically for our meetings. Um, and we directly confront the people who exploit us through collective direct action. Let's talk about your tactics. Very in your face, right? Like that's... I, I, from watching a couple of the videos, we've seen the tactic of, you know, bringing it right to the employer. So these are employers who have not paid the wages of their workers, correct? And it's, you know, I've heard you explain as creating consequences, real to, real life kind of consequences for employers. Is Have you found that that's been effective in recouping workers' wages? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, you know, we we have this tactic of confronting our exploiters. We we have been, you know, using that decently effectively. Since we started uh, last year, we've been able to recuperate uh, $250,000 worth of wages for our membership. Um, so our tactics, as you probably already know, or maybe you don't if you're listening to this podcast, is uh, to basically name and shame our employers uh, via protests in front of their businesses, and their places of residence, i.e. their homes. So, uh, you know, we do that. And we also strategically do social media boycotts of these places. 
so people in our community also don't purchase goods from these places. Uh, that kind of happens organically. We don't like explicitly ask for that, but that happens over time. Uh, people go in and sell Google reviews, telling people that like this is a bad place to you know come and purchase your parts because they haven't paid their workers. If you look through our Instagram page and all of our the rest of our social media, you'll see examples of this. This is particularly effective in our community because there's a significant amount of importance placed on honor and uh, just like social status. So there's this concept of bezity, which means like um, to dishonor someone. Uh, and once these 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 exploitative employers are you know experience that, they immediately kind of fall in line. Uh, we've seen at least that they fall in line a lot rapid, pretty rapidly. Um, there's also examples of like our our workers and our membership living on the same street as the employers that they're protesting. So that often is very interesting as well. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, now I want to know about a bit about the reactions. Simran, I imagine you guys take a lot of slack for your your tactics, right? But I'm also hearing community support, right? It's it's kind of what has has it been a bit of a mixed bag or generally how has that been received? And I know you guys have a diverse uh, array of tactics. It's not your first approach is is to poster the neighborhood, right? But <laughs> what's it been like, Simran? What's the response been? Um, yeah, so the response, I'll say, from employers, uh, we'll talk about that first, <laughs> has been varied. Early on when we started uh, protesting or doing public campaigns, we got a range of employers from those who completely ignored us, people who outright threatened their workers with violence. There was, I remember there was one employer very early on who said, I will kill you to the worker, right? And then uh, there are a few employers, specifically four, who have filed defamation lawsuits against uh, NSN and our members. Um, in order to silence workers, to intimidate them into uh, halting the protests and halting our organizing. So that's been kind of the response from employers. And I'll note that over the last year, we've noticed also a shift that as people have recognized um, the power of workers, that we're capable of fighting for our rights, and that the labor courts are not sufficient in um, asserting our rights, employers have been increasingly willing to negotiate. So when we send our letters, they are more willing to meet with us and do a table talk, and they're willing to unblock the numbers of the workers that they've previously ghosted for like a year. So that's one shift in employers. And among workers in the broader community, it's been very positive. Um, definitely the first protest lit a match in the community because wage theft is in incredibly rampant. But otherwise, I think what we've heard from other workers is this has offered a lot of confidence and hope for people, especially international students who previously did not know that they could do things like protest or file labor claims while working on cash. So it has been very transformative. Um, and at the same time as we've received, uh, you know, propaganda or people have spread lies about us or, you know, said like, why are you defacing public property when we're postering or why don't you go to labor court? At the same time, um, I would say workers themselves who know that this is real have been uh, the loudest voices of support. And the ones who are against us are really just people who are employers themselves. And so 
I think it just shows us when there's opposition to you, you're doing something right. And if everyone is on board with what you're doing, well, uh, you should be concerned, maybe. 100%. And often the folks telling you to use those official avenues or legal mechanisms of change do so because they know that they're not effective, right? And you mentioned that the labor system hasn't been particularly effective, or sorry, the legal system, we'll get into labor later. <laughs> the, the legal system hasn't been all that great in uh, protecting particularly international students and, and, and migrant workers. And, and What is it about those workers that makes them particularly vulnerable to wage theft or other other modes of, of labor exploitation? Like the, the, the you know, the, the confusion around legal and labor systems is, is perfunctory. Like that makes sense. Like it, it, it's designed in a way where those two things are very much aligned in, in like making sure that our membership um, has issues. Most of our membership are international workers, student workers, um, who are very low wage, have the risk of deportation and their PR being taken away constantly hanging over their heads. And uh, so they're, they're, they're really worried about like, you know, the impact of them filing anything with the labor court. What does that look like? Um, also the role of the labor court largely has been to like individualize and in- invisibilize basically uh, their entire approach has been to individualize and invisibilize these people. Uh, we have, you know, cases right now where we have filed labor court claims back in September. We have pay pay orders ready for them, you know, from like December, and this is now August, and those pay orders have not been actioned. You know, is it we're who are about to hit like uh, anniversary marks for these people? You know, for for ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars. This is not an insignificant amount of money. This is, you know, especially for low-wage workers who, whose entire livelihoods are dependent on this amount. Um, it, it's really not a good time to have to wait for that for over a year just to get a pay order, which has already been signed, to get delivered and, and paid out. So this is like the, the, the ground reality of what we're dealing with here. Um, so, you know, that this wage thieves are aware of this. They have been relying on this for years in order to continue what they're doing. Like Simran said, wage, uh, wage thieving or wage theft, sorry, is, uh, is rampant. But, uh, you know, our action has finally kind of been a barrier for wage theft. Um, these wage thieves are now thinking twice about going ahead with what they normally do. And uh, this has been bringing more and more people into the movement and like has been building the confidence for within our, our organization to fight back and people coming in are more and more determined to be able to fight back because they have seen that success, that $250,000 number that we quoted earlier, like that, that makes sense. That, that's kind of like what drives people to come here because they have really very few other options and whatever options they're given by way of the, um, the system, let's call it, uh, have been failures. Um, and also, this has had like a bit of a disciplining effect on on employers. Like I think Simran mentioned this earlier, but employers now, you know, once they see this, they they think twice. They they think twice about about wage theft, and that's a good thing, and that'll always be a good thing. Oh, um, I wanted to answer your question about uh, what what makes workers more vulnerable. We already know workers are 
exploited regardless of status, but particularly our membership, um, international students, people who are on study permits, people on work permits, people who don't have PR, maybe people who don't even have status. Um, definitely one of the main things is being uh, new to the country, maybe not being fully aware of your legal rights. Um, at the same time as being kind of beholden to your employer because you want access to PR, the PR uh, immigration system is very much tied to receiving uh, experience letters and other forms of support from employers. So, so many people, including through bonded worker contracts, are at the mercy of their employers and it's a fundamentally unequal power relationship on top of the unequal relationship between a worker and an employer in uh, the system already. Um, so that's one thing. And I think, just like Erin said, when you have one case or one campaign become, become an example, it is uh, has a ripple effect. With the Jadhat case, with Satinder, she worked as an international student. She received cash as a form of compensation, right? Um, and still, there are students who don't know that they can work on cash, that there's nothing to be you know, feel shame about that, that you can file a labor claim. Um, and so those are fears, fears of deportation, fears of speaking against your employer, um, a fear of kind of entering the system, so-called system through a labor claim. Those are fears that are particular to our membership. How do you bridge those fears? So how do you get tr workers to trust you and, and your comrades there? Because it is a very kind of uh, public you know, response to challenge your employer that way. And so how I imagine your reputation precedes you now, which is, you know, due to your great work. How else are you helping uh, folks kind of come into the circle and, and get help? Well, like the uh, workers are our membership, right? Our, our entire membership is comprised of these specifically low wage workers that, you know, are in our community. And our expectation from our membership has always been that, you know, we are here to help you and push you along with whatever case you're fighting presently. But, you know, once a result is reached where, you know, you are happy with the outcome or whether you are not an, also concurrently while your case is being processed, we need for you to continue coming to our meetings and supporting everybody else in your position. We have tons of people whose cases that we have, like we have, we have already, you know, won. Uh, that keep coming back. You know, when I first joined NSN, I I, I wasn't a founding member. I joined NSN, you know, more recently. And Simran, she founded the uh, she which was part of the founding membership. Um, so when I joined, it was like exhilarating for me to see the people that you know I had read about on Instagram actually be there, uh, fighting for the next person in line that that needed that support. So that that like expectation is very clearly outlined to our membership when we take their case on and we show consistency over time right like there's a sustained amount of effort and work that goes into building this and uh, we constantly you know tell them we're going to do something and then we show up and we deliver on those things which you know the membership is is, is obviously observant of that it's something that they have seen other systems fail to do like the labor courts might promise them something and do another thing Whereas we, on the other hand, do not, you know, go back on our promises, which is kind of a big deal for us. Um, this is this is also aligned with Punjabi culture, language, and faith, where like there's a lot of like that the piece about honor that we talked about earlier, like once you your word is your honor kind of thing. Um, so so that that is very effective. And once these workers see how effective our tactics are, 
they're they're very very good about like uniting in the struggle and building radical solidarity with one another so i guess the the social media strategy also helped recruit you right erin so absolutely absolutely yeah that's that's how i found out about it yeah so if you're going to put on these great visible displays of solidarity and resistance you guys are doing a really great job of also getting them out there. You mentioned your membership being made up of the very same folks that you're fighting for, right? And I I love the expectations that you kind of build in and how that will just kind of keep building, right? A snowball effect. But have you been able to solicit help from outside of the workers that actually need it? You know, how has allyship looked? Has organized labor you know, with a big L, have they been of assistance? Other networks, perhaps, uh, doing the same work. Uh, Simran, did you want to take that? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Before I answer that question, I'll just note, and this is something that we correct all the time in media and when we speak to, you know, um, people interviewing us, it's it's very easy to use the words we're helping people or we're doing this for others. And one of the kind of ethos and uh, guiding principles we have in our organization is self-organization and leadership of workers facing this themselves. And so when workers come to our meetings and they say, please help us get our wages, we say, great, we will stand with you, but you need to first stand up on your own two feet, fight for your rights, and we'll stand shoulder to shoulder with you. You know, this is not a charity, this is not an NGO, we're not coming from above and swooping you and saving you. You are saving yourself so that you are capable then of offering your expertise, your knowledge, your time to other workers in solidarity. Um, and so it's it's really important to us that we, we do our work based on the momentum of workers themselves. If someone's like, I'm out, I can't do this protesting, I can't commit to this campaign anymore, that's it, the campaign's over. Um, and... Uh, so that's really important to us, and I think is a, is a key part of building uh, strong workers' organizations. Um, to your question about labor movements, um, uh, early on we did reach out to organizations in solidarity who aligned in terms of their politics and their respective works wherever they are. So with the specific Jadhat case with Sitinder where she was owed over $18,000 in wages, we held a protest in front of the Jadhat restaurant and we specifically invited um, organizations in solidarity. And so people showed up from Park Do Organize, from um, Gig Workers United, from I think Anak Bayan, on uh, Ontario Federation of Labor and a couple of other organizations. So um, that's been really, really important that members of our community and that employers see this is not specific to the Punjabi or South Asian community. This happens everywhere and that there's a broader labor movement we are embedded in. And then more recently, I think connecting with other labor groups at Labor Notes in Chicago and um Having also at our, our last protest at Sook Auto, we've had members of other union locals join us, uh, members of other worker organizations. I, I think that's been an important uh, unfolding development. And we're really hoping that other organizations on the left can also show up. We know it's a little bit difficult sometimes to come all the way to Brampton. But as someone who previously organized a lot in Toronto, what I will say is stop neglecting the suburbs make an effort to um, come out here because we have our members, international students and workers, who go across two or three cities to work 
and to study. And I think the left should figure out a way to move outside of the downtown core because it's workers in the suburbs who are really running the GTA, specifically in the logistics industry. If you don't mind, Jess, I just wanted to add to that a little bit. Like, you know, if you've ever worked downtown, which I have had the privilege of doing before, uh, I, you know, every every single Tim Hortons you walk into, every single like store you walk into that like fulfills your your needs as like a a, a worker downtown, whether that's at 9 a.m. in the morning or even earlier, or whether that's at 3 a.m. you know late at night when nothing else is open and the only thing open is like a 24/7 drive-through somewhere. All of those are work. All of those, all of those workers that are there, all of those are specifically people that you know drive back at 3 a.m. or take a Go Transit bus back to. Uh, Go Transit is actually nice. They're probably taking TTC uh, back to to Kipling and then taking a Brampton Transit bus from there to you know their respective homes here. Those are the workers that we have been neglecting within the Canadian you know left, so to speak, for eons at this point like these are these are the people that that, that have been driving our our economies and uh yeah that's particularly what i think we need to start focusing on because it makes sense right like people that are living downtown typically are for the most part people that can afford to live downtown and the people that live in brampton and mississauga are people that cannot afford to live in brampton outside of brampton and mississauga yeah they say well farmers feed the city but it seems you know like outlying York region and and Peel essentially staff the cities it's that's evident to to folks um I it's I'm glad to see that there was you know signs of solidarity um amongst labor it makes me wonder you know have there been attempts to unionize these workers um is that a solution that uh that they see you know in the foreseeable future I know we've seen a huge drive to unionize workplaces now that, you know, maybe before seemed insurmountable. Um, I'm thinking, you know, Starbucks and particularly the warehouse staff um, of Amazon. Is that a solution um, being explored? No, absolutely not. We had uh, at the Labor Notes conference in Chicago where um, primarily the attendees were union members of the U.S. labor movement. We had 12 of our members attend, um, and they were kind of exposed to what union organizing looks like. Um, and so that was very inspiring. And I think one of the things we're now contending with also, and that people know, our members know, is that we are all, our members, are, are very mobile workers. People are moving around cities and countries for PR. People are moving from industry to industry, employer to employer, because they're experiencing exploitation and wage theft, because the conditions are, are brutal and unbearable. So what's difficult is it's, it's much easier, and unionizing is not easy to begin with, but it is easier when you have people who can stay in one place over several months to years. Um, and so that's not the case for immigrant workers, for international students. And that's partly why um, it's difficult to unionize. And I can't speak on behalf of union leadership or locals and why they choose to you know, not organize in one place or another. But we do know that that's one of the one of the challenges that makes it difficult for them to invest organizing energies into uh, workers like our membership. But what that means is that we all have to get 
experimental and think creatively about how to build worker power, worker collectives um, outside of maybe the traditional union framework. Because there are also unions who, there are workers who manage to unionize. Maybe they get a contract and then they don't do a lot in the three to five years where they've gotten that contract. So how do we keep workers at the helm of their organizing and to continue to be active and participatory within the broader labor movement and political and social movements? That's a standing question. Do solutions like status now, you keep, uh, maybe we should have explained it, uh, you keep mentioning PR, that's permanent residency here in Canada, right? So we're talking about the immigration status of folks. I imagine that plays into their ability to unionize or come forward. You know, there's certain um, aspects that play into there. But there is a, uh, a movement about the Migrant Workers Network, uh, the working to get landed status now um, for a variety of precariously employed people like migrant workers and international students. Would that help solve some of the problems, you know, outside of, or at least within the confines of capitalism that still exists, right? But would that, is that a legislative solution? First of all, would having permanent residency an immigration status that is, you know, something like citizenship be helpful to immigrant workers in feeling more comfortable asserting their rights and organizing? Absolutely. The reason that so many of our members pay thousands of dollars sometimes to immigration consultants, the reason why they tolerate horrible conditions in the workplace is because they have a desire to get PR and have stability and security and a life of dignity here. So absolutely we see the immigration system as uh, one of the root causes behind why this exploitation is happening. Um, in terms of our membership, we do make decisions democratically, and, and I will say my best sense of status on upon arrival, which is certainly something that would be very helpful and is a, a broader goal, is uh, not something that has organically come up in our membership as, as kind of a demand, because it seems pretty... Um, far away from us, right? Right now, we still have members of the community, international students themselves and other immigrant workers who are still having conversations about the 20-hour policy that limits international students to work 20 hours per week. That, that, that small legislative change that could change everything for international students. So I think we, we like to kind of um, be really grounded in the discourse and the concerns that, that um, our workers, ha our, our members have. Um, and, and I think there's no doubt that immigration status is a huge driver of uncertainty and exploitation. Um, and if, we're, if it were to happen, I think that would be, uh, um, that would very much give people a lot more confidence to assert their rights. And that's why we're saying uh, that we can't separate issues of immigration from exploitation as well. Yeah. Okay. I think I feel like I'm a little bit more confident to be able to add to this now because there's a few things. Like there's there's a number of drivers of exploitation, immigration amongst them, of course. But you know, in the society we live in, these people that are on the most marginalized, vulnerable edges of society, our membership really, 
Um, these people have, you know, exploitation and are, uh, and are vulnerable to exploitation from a lot of different fronts. Immigration amongst them, like we've just outlined. But of course, we have landlords that are doing the same thing to them. Colleges, like we just had the protests recently at Alpha College in uh, north of Toronto, um, where students just in the middle of their semester uh, were just kind of left high and dry and they had to organize in order to, to get the, the restitution that they deserved. Um, government, of course, you know, with that 20-hour limitation that, that Simran just outlined. These are very small legislative changes. Specifically, that 20-hour thing is like a very small leg legislative change that can entirely change the landscape and make lives so much easier for each of our, each of our members, really. Uh, on top of this, you know, we can talk about like sexual harassment that these people face in the workplace and they're, they're, they're worried about like pushing back against because, you know, you start a case against your boss who has to sign off on your PGWP, which like allows, sorry, if your listenership doesn't know what PGWP is, it's basically the postgraduate work permit. You come here as a student, you finish your, your education and you get a year. Uh, within which you have you, you get a work permit for a year basically, and if you hold that job down for a year, you can apply for PR. So if you're in your PGWP and you're sexually harassed, you got to put up with it for a year because uh, you know, or you could find a new job, but like it's it's a, it's half a dozen of one and six of the other basically. So uh, that's basically where things stand with these workers. And our end goal is, of course, that, you know, we are able to transform and shape the conditions these workers live and work in, like our membership lives and works in. Uh, but our, our limitations include the fact that, like, we're funded by low-wage workers for the most part, right? Like, these people are low-wage workers who are earning nothing. And even so, they've been stolen from. Like, whatever they were supposed to earn, they're not earning. And that's our funding, you know? Just like, how, how are we supposed to fight the, this behemoth that we're up against when that's our funding and we're doing monthly meetings and almost you know once in every two months we have like huge rallies and we're funding that using money that we have from our membership we're completely self-funded and that is the exploitation we're dealing with that that really piles on and starts to kind of it's hard to fathom i'll be honest so limited to working 20 hours a week in a minimum or low wage job being stuck for months without your paycheck is that typically what happens just like stop pay and what normally would a worker do under these circumstances had they not come into contact with the network like what were people previously other than what you mentioned at the beginning what you know when there's just no way out like what other recourses were attempted, like, or is it essentially they they just have to deal with it? They absolutely just have to deal with it. We outlined suicide, which is a, a solution that a lot of people look to. Um, that's not tenable, obviously. That's what we're trying to combat. Nothing in our healthcare system, nothing in our uh, labor rights, like our, our labor law system, our legal system, ever stands up to fight that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's this like ragtag group of like brown people in the suburbs that are sitting up and, and fighting this right now. But uh, that's the material reality of the situation. And our, our, our resources are limited, like I said, like we're, we're funded by poor people. We get hit with uh, lawsuits sometimes from these employers. Um, and that's always a fun one. But we, we could probably get into that. But 
yeah, there's there's a, a whole litany of things that we're we're fighting against, and still we're winning, which is great. Um, yeah, and I'll just add, the 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 worst case scenario is of course suicide. Um, the other thing that happens is people have to borrow money from their friends, their families, from anyone they can find to pay their rent, to pay their groceries. As an example, um, we are currently uh, doing a campaign against a restaurant named Baba Taba, employer Mahabir Bhatt. There are seven restaurant workers, former restaurant workers, who came forward about stolen wages uh, at the restaurant. And um, they spoke of how they had to they barely had any money in their bank account. They had to borrow from other people. They were in a state of desperation. And we'll just add, it's not just that people are vulnerable and they're struggling. It's that in so many ways that we can't see and imagine outside of an organization, people are still resisting and fighting back. Specifically with Baba Daba, the three workers that came forward about their experiences of wage theft after the first protest that we did in front of the restaurant and home of the owner... Those three workers recounted a story in which, while they were all working at the restaurant, one of their co-workers had not been paid her wages and could not afford her groceries. So they refused to work. They sat down and said, we're not going to work until she's paid. They did this on their own. They did this without NSN. They did this without a union. And that is the spark, and that is the... um, what the strength that is within workers that uh, exists that is uh, I feel is very often diminished or outright neglected by people on the left and by unions and I think that's like within us and that's what we have to build from um, and so before NSN certainly people were struggling more than they are now but I would say there were also probably ways people were resisting and um, keeping their heads high uh, without an organization, and that's that's worth tapping into. I'm so glad you chimed in with that. Obviously, it's it's important to note that you know the worst case scenario does exist, and, and it's part of what drove you folks to create the Nudge One support network. But also that that resistance exists within us. That's very powerful. I just. It was worth repeating there. Thank you for that. Honestly, you guys facing lawsuits and, you know, obvious struggle in in raising funds within those confines. What would you say the most pressing need is for your organization? You know, are you guys taking care of each other as well? I mean, you do a lot of work and burnout is an issue for everyone, but you know, what could you guys do with a lot of right now? <laughs> um, we could do with all of our members being paid their wages. <laughs> that would be real nice. Um, I'll just add, and for, for anyone who does want to contribute, um, the defamation lawsuits out of the four that NSN has faced, one the very first one we defeated. And what you should know about defamation is that if what we're saying is the truth, then we really have nothing to fear. 
and we know that what we're saying is the truth. We also review people's evidence, we do our due diligence, and we trust that no worker would take the risk of also coming out into the public if, if what happened to them wasn't, wasn't real. And in order to fight those lawsuits and to make sure no other worker who is thinking about campaigning is intimidated into uh, silence, um, we would encourage any, any listeners and supporters to donate to the Legal Defense Fund. Um, and so I think that is a barrier, that is a challenge, and we're hoping that legal mechanisms are not, is not the challenge um, for, for organizing. Um, the, the other thing is that uh, we need people on the ground. So when there's a call out for a protest, uh, we would really encourage members of other organizations to come in solidarity, feel free to share your words. We really love it, especially if workers, rank and file workers from other unions and organizations would like to share their experiences of worker action, of strikes, um, and to share the stories across our, our respective spaces. Um, and I think, uh, Arend, maybe you could chime in on this as someone like how you felt as, as a new member of our organization as well. Well, not so new. It's, it's been a couple months. Um, but uh, I think uh, the strength of an organization is if uh, multiple people can, can handle campaigns and handle tasks on their own and support one another with that labor and with those, those tasks. And um, that's in part why we place an emphasis on worker-led campaigns, because um, it's it's really on our members to carry the momentum and the labor forward, and that's also our goal is to make sure that there's um, uh, the organization isn't reliant on one or two people or activists. It's reliant on worker self activity. Yeah, I mean, for for the piece that that Simran just outlined, for years, you know, I've been trying to get involved in my community to try and find a space that uh, aligned well with my politics. Um, and for years, you know, like I went to a number of organizations across the GTA where I tried to like be a part of their, whatever their events were and such to try and find my niche within each and every one of them. Um, but it is hard to get involved, to be honest. And, and I think like if, if your goal, Jetha, is to help people get involved, like it, it has been something that I think like a lot of these ground level groups organizing I, I faced a lot of trouble doing that like I, I would go to events but there was no like the, that that consistency piece that like helps with our membership right now regardless of which strata of society you come from um, is actually very important and I and I don't think I realized this prior to joining NSN um, and I also don't think I realized that this was the the flaw in the organizations that I was looking to get involved in I will not name them and there's no point to doing that but there were, there's no there's no dearth of organizations that I tried to organize with at the beginning uh, before finally like finding myself in October or November of last year um, at the Chat Hut rally um, with somebody that told me that this was happening. I'd been following NSN on Instagram at that point for a few months already, but I saw that they were organizing a rally in Branson, which is you know, I've always wanted to be able to organize here in the Peel region because these are, you know, on some level I knew that, like, these are the real workers that, you know, affect me. My mom, my parents moved to this country. My mom worked at a pizza pizza for years. Uh, my dad pumped gas at Petro-Canada. Like, these are the immigrant jobs that they started out with. Now my dad works, you know, in Toyota and my mom works in the Peel District School Board. So, like, you know, that's the that's the immigrant journey that we're both on, on some level, like, it's seen as poverty porn, but on the other side is also, like, what this Canadian like country seems to take pride in but there's a lot of people that don't get to do that a lot of people don't get to work at toyota 
having started out as a guy that pumps gas at Petro Canada or like is one of those, you know, people behind the clock counter uh, at Petro Canada. And like, that's because they never get that upward mobility in our society at all. And uh, most of our membership, unfortunately, um, you know, has that material reality shifted for them because of that, because of the fact that they're facing wage theft. Um, and so I started to get organized. That was my, you know, first thought around it. I went there. It was a very welcoming group of people. It was also fantastic to see other brown people organizing, to be honest. Like, that was probably what I wanted more than anything else. Um, I'm not Punjabi, but, uh, you know, there has been long historical links between my state of Bengal and India and Punjab in terms of the revolutionary effort that, like, they both had to uh, take part in in order to expel the British. And to see, you know, the, the ideological successors of those people in India um, organizing here meant that I had to do my state's part in it, you know, and maybe that's a little bit nationalist to say, but that was uh, entirely, you know, a part of me, you know, I, I can't deny that now. And I started organizing with them and I have never seen any other organizations so open to new membership, new ideas, you know, I, that's not this, like I make mistakes all the time. I've probably made a few on this call and I have obviously in the few meetings that I've been to and everything like, but the the reality of the situation is that like, given the raw slash unpolished energy that somebody wants to bring to organizing, um, this is the type of organization that I think like they should be targeting themselves towards because like up until now I was floundering recklessly and kind of aimlessly uh, until I got to NSN and now like, the work that I'm doing with my with the membership, uh, you know, helping myself realize how I belong to them and they belong to me more than anything else has been like the, the kind of like radical solidarity that I've read about in all of the European literature that has taught me that that needs to exist. But like now uh, I get to see it in brown communities. And, um, and, and to be honest, I think, uh, you know, they learned it from somewhere too, the, the European literary authors or whatever that, that like talked about it. It didn't start there. <laughs> like um, everything else. So, yeah. So it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, so, so that's kind of been, been a lot of, you know, it's just been some really fulfilling work to be able to do this. You do light up um, when you talk about your kind of onboarding and how you seem to have found your home in organizing I want to go to Simran because you were founding a member of the NSN network. And did you do this consciously? Um, were there mistakes you had made in your past that you learned from to build such a welcoming, uh, positive environment in Peel? Yeah, so just for context about the founding um, of NSN, uh, just to paint a picture, Prior to that, a couple of us were involved in the farmers' protests, the solidarity protests in the GTA. And so we held a, a community event in a park to honor the lives of the international students who died by suicide, as well as the over 700 martyrs in the farmers' protests. And it was the discussions there and the, the people, workers who were present there, uh, out of which NSN um, was created. So just definitely don't want it to seem like it was just one person. There, there was a collective effort to make this um, that was that was driven by workers. Um, in terms of kind of lessons, I I think see I think it's really important to not see 
organizing as an abstract utopian political project that you can concoct in your room with your friends who read books. That is not how it happens. Um, you have to be able to have normal human conversations with workers, whatever contradictions and whatever kind of the messiness that comes with that. Um, and that's where kind of some of the liberal identity politics, discourse, and ways of doing activism that I previously observed, especially in Toronto, would just not jive with what we're doing. Um, and I think that's totally fine. We are very happy um, doing this work and, and you know making sure that the people who are making decisions together, who are making mistakes together, who are building their power together are workers themselves. And so it's, I've just learned it's very important to be humble, to listen, um, to make mistakes, and to rewrite the script of what you've been told is organizing. Um, yeah. Correct. More so than anything else, if I may, Jessa, is that like before actually organizing, I always thought organizing was like about teaching people. Uh, it's not. It's the, absolutely the hell not. It's actually more sitting around and learning from these people from about what you know these membership, this membership that like we we deal with here, uh, what their material realities are and how to combat those. In, in an effective way. Um, <laughs> the long gone are my days of like sitting on Twitter or wherever else, all the toxic places uh, on the internet, yelling at other people about like what, you know, specifically some person, some arcane writer said at some point in history that was applicable to like Spain in the 1930s, for example, which is a fun one. Um, it, 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 it's, those those things have happened and they are, you know, obviously real. However, you know, this is the material reality in which we operate and this is the material reality within which we need to uh, understand the the many different ways in which our membership is affected. And, you know, the audiences that we are peddling this stuff to on Twitter or elsewhere are really not the audiences that are they're largely disaffected and that's why they're not the audiences that like really care for this sort of thing they're working their like tech jobs you know 100 150k a year no no care in the world that like really needs to that it needs to change they're benefited more so by the status quo than um the membership that i i'm, I'm now familiar with and consider my brothers and sisters I think when you yeah you talk about organizing not being leading so much as or teaching but listening and it, I think that ties back into what Simran was saying and what what you folks and what a lot of us do inherently believe is that the power to resist and the solutions to our problems do lie within us right um, and and so it seems like you've kind of structured. Uh, yourself that way or you operate that way structure just sounds so rigid you know it doesn't seem like the right choice of words there but um that's very positive i i i would love to be a fly on the wall and to witness this because it sounds truly remarkable um the way that you know it, it is completely worker driven and organic um but also very uh effective and I, you know, want to take time here to 
perhaps you can share the link verbally exactly where folks can donate as well as, you know, what is the next action do you have planned? Um, can we share that? Or is there a few bosses that we should take time to name and shame that you haven't already? Or um, Yeah, so if anyone would like to donate to the Legal Defense Fund, it's gofundme.com slash F slash NSN dash legal dash defense with a C dash fund. And if that's a lot, you can find that link easily um, through Google or going on our Instagram and Twitter pages. It should be there. Um, I'll just note that these are funds that we only direct to legal uh, representation against defamation lawsuits. But if anyone would like to also, through the union local or organization, um, donate funds for our regular operations, um, you can reach out to us directly and we'll, we'll let you know what the next step is. Um, and uh, we don't have any upcoming protests just yet. We encourage people to keep an eye out on our social media pages. Um, but we do have a event coming up on September 4th called Nojuan Jagrukta Mela, roughly translating to Young Workers Rising Fest. And that's on September 4th. Um, it's a community event. Primarily will be in Punjabi, but there will be people who speak English there, obviously. Um, from 3 to 8 p.m. at White Spruce Park. We'll be promoting that soon, and that will be kind of an evening of... Uh, events and programming and also just fun for people to um, celebrate and celebrate the last year of struggle and also to learn about our rights and um, go forward more united uh, and so keep an eye out for that and I don't know Rin, what do you think anything else I missed no that's it I think that's everything uh, please follow our Instagram page our link like uh, our, our Facebook page and uh, do we have a Twitter? If that, if yes. there is one, follow it. <laughs> I don't know if I, I, I'm pretty sure I follow it actually. I think it's Edison Peel, right? Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. right. And, this, and then there's also a TikTok I know of. Um, follow all of these things. I will make sure to do the same, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I might not be following the TikTok, but that's because I haven't gone on TikTok in a while. Um, and, it may be a hole you uh, don't want to go down. <laughs> yeah. That's correct. Yeah, I think like... <laughs> <laughs> just the TikTok all I think is like whatever productivity I have left in my life will immediately disappear into cat videos. Um, but yeah, please follow all of those things. That's how I got involved. I started following them on Instagram and then like that was the, the one Instagram thing I would look forward to because in the midst of all the rest of my doom scrolling uh, during this pandemic where I just sat around and watched Jeff Bezos go to space and then Elon Musk have sex with some flight attendant. There's no dearth of like workers being abused by uh, by the capitalist class um but yeah in the midst of all of this i saw like a few brown people in branton with signs and i was like hey that seems like a fun place to go instead so we know how to support your work and i'll be sure to share the links i'll definitely tie the legal defense link to the episode yeah but let's say we've also got folks not in Peel, maybe not even in Ontario. So they, it, they're they not making the trek, but they've got wage theft. They've got the same precarious workers in their community. They are a precariously employed person experiencing wage theft. Do you have any advice for them? Not legal advice, you know, like, but in terms of starting their own support network or anything you wish someone had told you when you started out doing 
um, this kind of justice work. Yeah, so one thing that we would really like to see is this type of worker self-organization happen wherever people are. So for as long as we've kind of existed, we've had messages of workers, international students, immigrant workers come from Surrey, from Winnipeg, from the East Coast, from the UK, America, Australia. It's, it's kind of widespread. Um, and to everyone, we suggest that uh, they consider um, organizing something like this on their own with their friends, with their coworkers, classmates, and we are very happy to guide them and share lessons learned. Um, <clears throat> and I'll say that uh, it's kind of already organically happening, not just in the Punjabi community and not just in Brampton, but elsewhere. So one example is just a few weeks ago, there were two um, Kurdish workers uh, who were protesting in front of a, um, a landscaping business in North York and the worker is a refugee and he just did this without any knowledge of NSN. He just did this because he needed his wages and this, um, uh, and then they ended up joining our meeting a few days ago. Um, and so even in Surrey, I think there's kind of, uh, a bubbling of some kind of organizing happening there independently. And it's very important that people adapt these organizing strategies uh, to their context and their community. So we've had members of other uh, racialized communities, other kind of migrant communities also reach out and ask how they can do this in their communities. And so what would be amazing is to see this flower wherever wage theft and exploitation is happening. Which is everywhere, right? But that's the idea, right? Let that flower everywhere. I'm just in awe, honestly, when you talk about, you know, two workers, especially refugee workers, when we've discussed the precariousness associated with immigration status, like that is, that's amazing. Um, my feed needs to be more filled with those stories. I can make a drive to North York like this. This is, I, it sounds so scary to be two workers standing against an employer like that. And it's still happening. So we, so I had an opportunity to talk to them on Saturday, actually. They came to our meeting, and obviously they're Kurdish, so, um, you know, <laughs> you know they're, they're Kurdish and they, they don't speak any English. And uh, they have this very good uh, translation app on their phone, which uh, seemed to work very, very well. And uh, in the midst of us talking, they were talking about how, like, just standing up to the man is something that Kurdish people take a lot of pride in being able to do. Uh, obviously, if you know anything about Kurdish people, you know that they've had to do that a few times, um, a few times meaning incessantly and forever and haven't been able to like look away from doing that. That's their material reality. Um, and, you know, they saw this injustice happening in front of them. And so they did what was natural and what should it be questioned. You know, they they took a stand and they decided to fight it. Um and that's, I think, like something that immigrant communities in general have always been ready to do. Uh, it's just, you know, the, the system that bogs us down more so than anything else. I think it is natural to kind of act against injustice, but clearly that doesn't, you know, exist everywhere. Um, I wonder if it's the experience of oppression, you know, through forced migration or, or whatnot, or if it's just other cultures have had it removed so that it is inherently a human thing to stand up alongside one another against bullies, against dangers. 
So, so there is a thought around that. Like we are, you know, we see ourselves as like virtuous. Someone more intelligent than me said this, but uh, you know, we are, we see ourselves as virtuous human beings. So whenever there is injustice, we mobilize and we show up. And you know, we saw that on mass in June 2020 with the Black Lives Matter protests that happened all across uh, you know, North America. Um, but it's you know, mobilization is one thing, but organization is another. Like mobilization is easy and happens all the time, um, but it has little to no lasting effect. Uh, however, organization, that is eternal. You know, that, that, that mobilization that we do every two months, like we mentioned earlier, like that is sustained and will last forever. Um, and so that is the importance with organization as opposed to just mobilizing. And I think like the immigrant community that we're touching upon, like these people have been organizing, have been protesting in an organized fashion since time immemorial, whether that was in the the anti-colonial struggle, anti-imperial struggle, um, or, you know, we see, we see, you know, brands of it here as well with um, the uh, groups in, 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 in North America that are fighting for uh, indigenous rights. Like they, they have been organizing since, time in memorial right and so we we see that exist in a number of communities and organization is like the 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 key aspect of all of this that ties us all together because we can mobilize as much as we want but the next news cycle or two news cycles after that the mobilization is forgotten but organization cannot be um I'll just also add to that. I think it's specific to the history of Najwan Support Network and our membership. Um, we kind of arose during the time of the farmers' protests. And for people who don't know, that was a year-long occupation of the borders of Delhi by farmers from primarily Punjab and Haryana and a few other states. Um, and they defeated a fascist government. That was a year, just imagine a year-long protest on the streets, living there, sustained, building infrastructure, um, there's been nothing like that in in Canada, and it was a very a historic victory that continues to inspire our membership. So, like Erin said, we're drawing a lot on the legacies of of resistance and of organizing um, back home, and specifically, I'll add just for our members right now. And obviously, our membership composition can change as more communities join us or start their own organizations. A lot of our members are from the Sikh Punjabi community, and <clears throat> the the Sikh faith is was created and is rooted in struggle against tyranny, against Mughal rule, against other authoritarian regimes. Um, and so that's why people who look at our social media may see not just uh, a different language, but a different faith and spirituality being reflected in our organizing. And I think it's important for other communities too to, to tap into um, the, the, the spiritual and cultural and language realms that, that give them collective strength. Before I ask you, you know, if, if we've kind of missed anything, um, <clears throat> I wonder if you could share, you know, we've heard some of your success stories, but what is the hardest part about doing what you do and sustaining the work of NSN? I can go first. Um, I think the defamation lawsuits have been particularly soul crushing. Uh, that's always fun to deal with. Um, so, so that's probably like the hardest part, part of the hardest part of what we do. 
Um, and yeah, like, I mean, I, I think we mentioned this earlier about like our, us being self-funded with low wage uh, membership, you know, everybody in our membership is low wage workers. Um, so that's, that's tough to do. And, uh, you know, another struggle that we currently have is that like, we're primarily focused on people that have since left their jobs at the places that we're exploiting them, but we still have people at those same places working to this day, right? Like they are, they're currently being exploited as well. Um, and to kind of transition towards that, where we want to be able to, uh, to have these people that are currently in those roles also on site with us without they while still risking like losing their job which you know is like you know there's a dissonance around like you know once you've lost your job i think you're okay to fight against your previous employer but it's like a lot harder to do when it is your current employer um and it actually materially impacts everybody else as well so um that's probably i think like what i would say are amongst the hardest things we're working on so you've touched on in part of what drives you both but the organization side Simran what makes you do this work personally you know what do you find most rewarding so uh first of all as a member of the second Punjabi community and some was as someone who was also raised in Brampton and Mississauga has just like Arun said we have our own experiences of being raised in working class homes with working parents who have struggled similarly and which recent like current immigrants are facing an unimaginable and imaginable level of struggle than previous generations um i think it's certainly something i personally relate to and had my parents not immigrated here when they did i would be sent here as an international student today so um i think that's uh, kind of personally why this is important to me and i think it's there's just so much to learn and so much brilliance and intelligence and expertise and creativity that our members bring. And I'm honored every day to work and fight alongside them. Arun, you're nodding. I hear you agreeing. Did you have anything you wanted to add there before we Definitely. Go? Yeah, definitely. Two things. One is, uh, especially to Simran's point about the intelligence of our membership, uh, far more frequently am I like enthralled by the brilliance of what I'm around uh, within, you know, people that, you know, we in our society perceive as anti-intellectual because of, you know, the, you know, it, yeah, and it's unfortunate that like, we think of like the the working class, the blue collar labor as like unintelligent. And I think that's like pervasive regardless of like how much theory you read, so to speak. Um, and so to hear these people that are like actual blue collar workers, like, talk to me about, you know, nuances of things that I haven't even ever had the opportunity of considering or haven't like really encountered. It's just like, it shows to me that like within our membership, there's people that like, for, for whom this is not just like a marketplace of ideas. This is the material reality in which they fight, in which they work, in which they survive. And they have to keep doing this until, you know, time forever, pretty much in order to like just sustain themselves and be able to bring food to their table. So, so that's the one piece. And, uh, yeah, my mom, when we first moved to this country, she uh, experienced wasted. It was nothing. It was, she worked there, like, a day, one day. Um, and she was owed, I think, like, at the time, minimum wage was, like, $8. I think she was owed, like, $40 or something for having worked there a certain amount of hours. And uh, the employer was also South Asian, uh, Pakistani, I believe. 
and uh, withheld pay from her some forty six or forty seven dollars that she was owed. Um, and she stood there and fought him basically, and not, not like actually physically assaulted him or anything, but like, yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen my mom. She's not, she will not hesitate to throw hands if necessary. But like, uh, she, she definitely, you know, made sure that she was hurt and she got her money before she left. Like, uh, and that was like one of the earliest lessons we learned here in Canada is that even for forty something dollars, which to an employer is nothing, it's chump change. It's literally equivalent to like you know, a toner cartridge or whatever that you're purchasing for your office. Um, and he wouldn't do that. So that was like the reality then. And obviously, you know, seeing this happen now and just like realizing that this happened in my family. And I was too young to like really think about it any more than, you know, what I did when I was 13 or 14 when it happened. And uh, yeah, like to be able to, to, to fight these people who are owed a hell of a lot more than my mom was. And uh you know, is is something that like definitely speaks to the immigrant experience within me. Thank you. That's what I mean about my feed needs to hear more of these stories. I mean, you grew up with that kind of story and it obviously, amongst other things, profoundly shaped you, right? So if we could just get all these stories. So I'm so grateful for your time, for coming on here, for sharing your stories, other people's stories, and for doing the work that you're doing. It's absolutely critical. I'm very inspired by it. I hope other folks are as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting us. So I hope this episode gave you an idea of the resistance that does exist within workers that we do absolutely have the ability to fight back, even if it's by ourselves, but more ideally amongst other workers of similar conditions. Bold work like what the Najwan Support Network does, obviously, as you heard, does not come without consequence. So they could use a lot of solidarity. This is just another reminder um, that they, they have a legal fund that needs support as well as more bodies at their action. So please look them up and support them wherever possible, whether it, it's through a certified union or through cooperatives like NSN. I see workers getting organized like never before, and it is very encouraging, especially in the face of such awful working conditions for so many. So again, thank you to the folks at the Najawan Support Network and for others doing similar work please support them in your efforts. Thank you. Like in all things that we do, there's a team behind Blueprints of Disruption. I want to give a big thank you to our producers, Santiago, Hello Quintero, and Jay Woodruff. Our show is also made possible by the support of our listeners. So if you appreciate our content and would like to become a patron, please visit us at www.patreon.com backslash BP of disruption. So if you know of any work that should be amplified or want to provide feedback of our show, please reach out to us on Twitter at BP of disruption. Blueprints of disruption is a project of new left media, an independent employee owned company.